0: Uh, there's uh, the the daily stoic which is a twitter site there are a bunch of popular books about stoicism and i think the reason for that is that stoics have a kind of formula for developing resistance and also for developing certain kinds of detachments from worry and concern and one of their strategies that they would advise us to adopt is first to distinguish between what's in our control and what isn't. It's not as easy to do as they sometimes suppose it is, but distinguish between what's in your control and what isn't. And then focus your efforts on what's in your control. This is actually not a bad thing. I'm not stoic, but it's not a bad thing to think about and reflect on in your life. I don't know about you, but most of the things that have really troubled me, kept me up at night, or kept me up when I wake up early in the morning and can't get back to sleep, are things over which I have very little control. And many of them are fictional worries, worries that I've kind of concocted in my head about things that I'm fearing, that if I'm actually being rational, there's very low chance of that happening. But because it's a possibility that somehow emerged in my head, I didn't fixate it and I'd start to think about ways to anticipate it or minimize it. Reflecting regularly on what's in your control and what isn't and trying to focus on what is for the Stoics is the first step toward developing a kind of freedom from being controlled by other people and external events that are not in your control. The resilience comes in for them in being prepared for whatever comes to you or happens to you. So there are these beautiful passages in Epictetus where he says, okay, if this happens, then you will exercise patience. If this happens, you will exercise kindness. If this happens, you will exercise prudence. So thinking about character traits, virtues, as being geared toward responses to evils that come your way. Evils that come your way, and I speak very broadly in the Stoic Two about evil. These are things that are unwelcome that come your way. It doesn't mean that there's someone actually doing evil to you. It could simply be an event. Prepare your soul to be prepared for whatever comes your way. And realize that no matter what comes your way, what's in your control is the response that you take to what happens to you. And the Stoics think if we can focus on that, if we can focus on being prepared to respond to whatever comes, we can become detached from the adverse effects of the consequences of what happens to us. That's a very short, they have all sorts of other strategies, like imagine all of time and your place within it. Imagine all of space and your place within it. And then think, relatively speaking, how insignificant are the things that trouble you and be freed from worry over them in the larger context of space and time. There's a danger in that, right? That might have made you a little uncomfortable as I was describing that. There's a danger in that because you can come to think it matters or you can come to think that your role is not significant at all. But that's not what the Stoics would have us do in developing resilience. We have all sorts of obligations, things we are called to do through work, through family, through friendship, through church, as being members of our society. The Stoics thought that all of these relationships that we had to various kinds of community determined our duties. And we needed to focus on those. But we needed to focus on those in a way that in a sense left the consequences up to providence, as they called it, and they explicitly have both. Providence. So, realizing the relative insignificance of your place in the whole drama of humanity and your place in the whole cosmos, for the Stoics actually should free us up to do what we ought to do here and now in this time and place. Still. There are, I think, limits to the Stoic vision. And I want to mention two. One's a a limit. The other is a possible pernicious result of following Stoicism. And I think it does show up in pop Stoicism much more than in classical Stoicism. Stoicism, as I mentioned, we have duties. We have things that we have to do. But Stoicism as a way of life is somewhat more about avoidance of evil than it is about the pursuit of good. It's about being prepared to detach yourself from the bad things that are coming your way so that you can have what they call imperturbability, not being adversely affected by things. But I want to suggest, as I turn in a moment to Aristotle and Aquinas, that happiness itself is much more than the mere avoidance of evils and being at peace. The second thing that can happen if, and this I think shows up in contemporary Stoicism, and it's in its therapeutic guides, we can become focused on self-protection to the extent that we actually fail to do the things that we need to do for others in our midst. So there's Stoicism, and there's, a, there's a, a strong element in the contemporary, in some branches of contemporary therapeutic response to anxiety that wants to say, just take care of yourself. Just make sure you're fine. Only do the things that you know that you could do. There's some wisdom in that, but it's a limited wisdom. And my worry is that that can become pernicious If our whole philosophy of life becomes about self-protection, if it becomes about self-protection, then when you need me to do something as a friend or as a family member or at work or on a team or as part of a theater group, I'm more likely to say, no, I can't do that because it might take me out of a zone where I'm comfortable where i feel protected again there's something to the importance of being protected making time for yourself not being over committed but one of the ways in which we learn virtue is by encountering challenges that we hadn't anticipated from communities that we're involved with from friends from family and we have to actually call for resources that we didn't know we had and hope that we can develop them. And this is where just by trying to be virtuous in an ordinary way, being a good family member, being a good friend, being a good member of a work team, being a good member of a team, we're often called upon in just trying to exercise ordinary virtue, we're called upon occasionally to exercise extraordinary virtue because of the relationships were involved. Aristotle and Aquinas and Dante recognize this. Let me move over to Aristotle and Aquinas. So flourishing, as I said with the Stoics, happiness is imperturbability. It's a state where I avoid the adverse effects of fortune, things that happen to me, and focus only on those things are within my control. For Aristotle, whom Aquinas follows closely on this, human happiness is satisfying of all human desire. Human happiness is the full actualization of all the powers of our soul, but not in isolation with other people in community. I want you to think for the moment about some experience you had in high school or that you're having in college of being involved in a particular high-level class in the sciences that might involve a lot of group work, for example, or a discussion class that's operating at a high level. But think even more about uh, team sports that you played on or an instrument that you learned where the performance was ultimately not just as an individual. But part of a band or orchestra or being part of theater. So playing soccer, playing basketball, whatever it might be. Think about the, I hope you had some good experience at some point in one area or another with a team sport or a group activity of this sort. Think about when that went really well. Think about the game, the theater performance, the orchestral performance, the band performance, where everything went really well. What are some of the attributes of that experience? I think some of the attributes are that you and others performed at a high level, right? And you complemented one another at a high level. This is why the, the examples that I pick here are why Plato and Aristotle keep talking about crafts or arts or sports when they talk about the development of virtue. Because the experience you have of, competing in a state championship sport at a really high level and winning or losing is much better if you win, but winning or losing is evidence of habits that have been perfected and at home. And there's a difference between our experience of playing that sport or that instrument or performing with a group when we start out learning it and when we have these great moments of performance when we start out learning it it's rote you got someone saying to you no you're not holding your fingers right on the keyboard go back and do that again and do it 30 times properly or if you're learning to play basketball you got to learn how to dribble then you got to learn how to dribble with your head up and then you got to learn how to dribble with your head up while running and then you got to do that with people defending you and players on your team asking for the ball Early on, you have to be very conscious of what you're doing, right? If you're learning to play the guitar or the violin, you have to be very conscious of how you're holding your fingers. You're also conscious of the time that's involved in this. It's repetitious, it's tedious, it can be boring. When you move past the stage of engaging in practice, to actually having some expertise, notice what drops away. If you're in a game or a concert performance, you can't consciously be telling yourself what to do. If you're consciously telling yourself, okay, execute a crossover dribble here and throw a bounce pass to a fellow teammate who's breaking through the basket, by the time you say that to yourself, the ball will be stolen and scored at the opposite basket. Similarly, if you're performing with a musical instrument, you can't be saying to yourself, hold your fit, you're way behind the rest of the group already. You lose self-consciousness in those moments of excellent performance. You also, in a sense, lose track of time. Right? This is the difference between a really good class where you're engaged and a class where you're looking at your watch. Please don't look at your watch right now where you're looking at your watch every 30 seconds thinking, when the heck is this going to end? So those experiences of the actualization of powers, of capacities that we have at a really high level with others, and who of us wouldn't want to go back to that game, that performance, unless you've moved on to higher level games and performances? Who of us wouldn't want to experience that regularly? Aristotle's advice to you, if you want to figure out which activities you want to devote the most time to, and if you want to have an intrinsically meaningful life, devote yourself as much as you can to activities that are intrinsically worth doing with others, where you lose yourself and you lose a sense of time because the performance is so high and your enjoyment is so high. The other example that Aristotle likes to turn to that works for this is friendship, right? Friendship, we don't, if we've got real friends and not merely instrumental friends or friends of pleasure, when we're spending time with our friends, we're not thinking, what am I getting out of this? And we're sad to see the time end. We lose track of time, we lose track of ourselves in spending time with our friends. This is for Aristotle, a key to happiness. Happiness is about engaging in activities that are worth doing for their own sake. That is activities you would do no matter what else comes out of it. Our lives are largely dominated by instrumental activities, things that we do because we have to do that to be able to do something else. Tocqueville has a rather chilling, Alexis de Tocqueville, the great French commentator of America, has a rather chilling observation about Americans, and this was in the mid-19th century, who he says are... um, are sad in the midst of their abundance. And he says Americans are convinced that happiness lies right around the next corner with this or that achievement or this or that purchase. And when they get around the corner, they realize it's not there. But instead of learning from that lesson, Americans think, oh, no, it's around the next corner. And we keep going in this way, with one thing leading to another thing, leading to another thing, until at last, Tocqueville says, they die. Very bleak moment in democracy in America. That's also a sign that what you wanna do with your life is to find activities that are intrinsically worth engaging in. Because these activities, and these are not, right, Notice these are not activities that are principally about avoiding difficulty or about self-protection. There's risk involved in all of these, right? And and very public risk in the sort of activities that I describe, athletics, musical performance. If you don't do well, you lose. Sometimes you lose horribly. If you don't perform well musically or in the theater, you know it. The audience knows it. Our pursuit of happiness or Aristotle and Aquinas is open to tragic disruption. There are things that can happen to us that don't necessarily destroy, but can harm our happiness. Both the death of a good friend, the death of a family member, even severe physical injury can harm our happiness. Aristotle and Aquinas both think that the human good is a complex good. It involves goods of the soul preeminently, but it also involves goods of the body and external goods. Aristotle and Aquinas both say that in response to tragedy, the virtuous person will bear up nobly. So the virtues in a way are more important to us in tragic circumstances of loss and harm than they are at other times. But the mere exercise of virtue there doesn't do away, doesn't eliminate or erase the sense of pain, the suffering because of loss or harm that we have suffered. For this reason, and here I will make a transition to uh, to Dante and Ulysses, Aquinas makes the argument, that courage itself is most properly about endurance rather than attacking. So you can think of courage in war, which is Aristotle's primary example of the exercise of courage, fighting to defend your country in war. And knowing when and where and how to attack and during it bravely is a high mark of courage for Aristotle and for Aquinas. And there are occasions where Aquinas says, we are called in the encounter with evil to pounce on evil courageously. But Aquinas thinks that it's a higher mark of courage to endure rather than merely to attack. He's thinking of circumstances where attacking is not going to do much good. Right? He's thinking of cases where I encounter what he says to be a superior opponent, especially a superior evil opponent. If in this case, enduring is a greater sign of courage. Why? Because in the moment when I attack, it's instantaneous. And I can attack and then I'm done. Maybe the attack takes a long time. But then it also might involve this other element of courage called endurance. But think about someone who's taken as a prisoner of war and tortured regularly over many years. What's the courage there relative to that person when he or she was in battle and just attacking the enemy? I think Aquinas is right about this. There's greater courage involved in the simple endurance that lasts years or decades of being tortured and not giving information to the enemy. Aquinas, you'll not be surprised to know, is also thinking that his model for courage is not the warrior fighting on the front lines of battle. It's the martyr. And the martyr does not attack. The martyr endures. And the martyr's activity for Aquinas is to cling to the good in the face of horrifying evil and opposition. That's resilience at its highest form for Aquinas. Let me say a few words about Dante and then I'll come back to this issue of endurance. So Ulysses character in The Elite and the Odyssey is involved with constructing the Trojan horse. He's actually put into a place in hell where the fraudulent are, the deceivers. But Dante doesn't focus upon his crafting the deception of the Trojan Wars. He, in fact, invents a whole new story about Ulysses that the poet Alfred Lloyd Tennyson in the 19th century wrote a poem called Ulysses, which is just an expansion of of Dante's few lines in the Inferno. That poem ends with Ulysses as an old man, bored reigning in Ithaca ready to go out and have a final adventure with his men and the final line to strive to seek to find and not to yield this sense of a kind of resilience that wants to just keep moving remember i said earlier that the latin term means to jump back or to recoil or to recover it means to take the hit and keep going right survive and advance as one of the great ESPN 30 for 30s as it is a title survive and advance take the hit and keep going this is what Ulysses does this is what he does in the Odyssey he takes hit after hit from people he meets and from the gods and keeps moving trying to get home but Dante and tennyson imagine him home getting old and bored and wanting to go back out seeking adventures Here are a few lines from Ulysses. Dante leans in with desire, and that leaning in with desire is later described as a kind of love or honor. Dante admires Ulysses, who's in hell. And we need to figure out what he admires and what he needs to be worried about with Ulysses, because there are some significant similarities between Ulysses and Dante. Nothing, Ulysses says when he emerges from his flame, in the 26th Canto of the Inferno, was able to defeat in me the longing I had to gain experience of the world and of the vices and the worth of men. I gathered my comrades, brothers, I said, oh, you who having crossed a hundred thousand dangers to reach the West on this brief waking, time that is still left unto your senses, you must not deny experience of that which lies beyond the sun of the world that is unpeopled. Consider well the seed that gave you birth. You were not made to live your lives as brutes, but to be followers of worth and knowledge. And they attempt to go out, and they actually have a glimpse of Mount Purgatory, which is where Dante will be soon after he exits the inferno and heads up uh, the Purgatorio. And, And Dante and Ulysses are parallel in that way, that they both see Mount Purgatory but they get caught in a whirlwind in the sea. Their oars become as wings, and yet they can't escape. And this tide pool overwhelms them, engulfs them, and they drown. Ulysses, this little story of Ulysses is the story of a tragic hero and a tragic quest in the middle of the inferno. The oars that become wings, Dante speaks of his poetry repeatedly as wings. Both of them see Mount Purgatory. Dante's always talking about being on a journey, just like Ulysses. What's the warning for us in Ulysses? Why is he in hell? Well, he's in hell because of the fraud. But Dante focuses on this story. And this is a story of admirable resilience, in a way right, of someone who even in old age didn't just want to rest on his laurels, but wanted to get back out there and have new adventures to take on the greatest risks of traveling beyond where any human beings had ever gone. What Dante is pointing out as a vice in his construction of this new story about Inglésis that follows after the Odyssey, some years after the Odyssey, is that Ulysses represents resilience as simply pursuing more experience for its own sake. It's experience for its own sake without limits that Ulysses represents for Dante in The Inferno. That wanting to have one more experience after another, which could at some level be a practice of resilience. Resilience itself is not a virtue, right? Resilience is a capacity to bounce back from difficulty, to take the hit and keep going. Resilience is necessary for virtue, but resilience is also necessary for certain kinds of noble evils the desire simply to have more experience for its own sake. What's missing here? What's missing is the type of journey that Dante himself will continue on after he leaves Ulysses. It's not the journey just to have more experiences of these people in the underworld or the people in purgatory or the people in heaven. It's a desire for experience that is ordered to the highest good. So that resilience matters most and it becomes a virtue when it's ordered to proper human happiness, which is about activities that are worth engaging in for their own sake. And happiness as finally understood as ordered to the highest good of all. So the type of resilience that Dante learns to exercise, and this indicates that he's tempted by Ulysses' model of resilience, a model that would just be about journeys and writing his poetry about the new people that he's met. But it can't be just about relating these isolated stories. It's gotta be about how the people we encounter, the experiences we have are ultimately ordered to God, and life everlasting. And that's what Dante exercises in numerous ways. And let me just give uh, a couple examples of this. Uh, Dante has to exercise resilience. I mean, when he's first outside uh, outside of hell, he faces certain animals who represent certain vices, and he falls down. He has no endurance he has no resilience and in his being tutored by virgil through uh the inferno and purgatory he builds up resilience and strength so that as he goes he becomes stronger and stronger and is able to make the ascent of purgatory and into paradise the other way in which he embodies resilience is questioning Dante never stops questioning, and there are frequent moments when Virgil will read his mind when he feels like he shouldn't ask a question, and Virgil will say, go ahead, ask the question. This is an indication, and this is particularly important for most of you since your primary calling right now is to be students, and your calling in every point as Catholics is to be learners is to become more and more educated and more and more wise. The only way you do that is by continuing to ask questions. Not in a skeptical, doubting, despairing way, but in questions that are rooted out of a sense of increasing wonder at the marvels you find around you in the created world and the individuals who god has put into your life um, uh, a jesuit philosopher baron used to say that the mark of an educated person is knowing how to formulate the next relevant question it's not just knowing a lot of things or a lot of facts although in certain circumstances, to be able to formulate the next relevant question, you're going to have to know a lot. Right? If you're doing a high-level science, particularly that involves experimentation, you've got to know a lot. You can't just walk into a lab and start asking questions. The next relevant question is going to be come from someone who knows an enormous amount. But it's not someone who says, okay, we're done now. That's it. And even if you have exhausted, in a relative sense, this area of knowledge, you've got questions about how this fits with other things you're learning, how this fits with how you're living, how this fits with how you are as a friend, how this fits in your living out the sacramental life of the church, how this fits with your prayer life. To be always formulating questions, not merely for the sake of knowing one thing after another, but for knowing how the parts of what you're studying and the parts of your life fit together under divine providence. That's what Dante's discerning. He's learning theology, he's learning philosophy, he's learning from the examples of all these souls, but he's also learning ever more deeply what providence has laid out for him in all these people who have been part of his life and in all the learning he's engaged in. And the reward of that is ultimately a vision of God, the direct vision of God. In the second to last canto, Dante would say Bernard learning about Mary, and he voices doubts there about the justice of salvation in the second to last canto. And Bernard says, no, fine, raise that question. Here's what you need to understand. I can only tell you so much, and it is a mystery, but the mind probes the mystery more deeply by formulating questions that are ordered toward understanding the true, the good, and the beautiful. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thamisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.